Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Yo, 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 what? It is July 13th. And uh, this time, is it on a Friday, is it it's Friday? Thursday. It's Thursday. Ooh, Thursday the thirteenth. Close one, buddy. Shutter could have been really bad, dude. What is with that, right? Like you it's go in the station, the elevators, the hotels, and they don't have a thirteen. I I, I I press all the other buttons just to get them back. Do you? Yeah. No. Oh, the whole thing's a Christmas tree. Turn them all on. <laughs> like Elf. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Did you know in Israel they have a Sabbath elevator that stops at every single floor? I heard that. I heard it. I thought that was a legend, myth, one of those things. No, I've real. seen it. It's are, real. Are they in New York too? I hear that there's a large population in New York. Uh, of just people in general? Yes. Jewish there's people. a lot of people in of, New York. Of Jewish people <laughs> who still follow the Torah. So there are, uh, yes, also a large population of Jewish people in New York. We're talking about the elevators. Okay. Never mind. Speaking of elevators, did you notice that at the school that we were doing church at this weekend, the elevators didn't work? No. Really? We had to carry up these very heavy 25 pound carts to the second floor Oof. like Neanderthals. Well, but it happened. But it did happen. And it was great. And our soft launch didn't happen without anyone catching on fire or yeah. nothing terrible happening. Yeah. And we've got this epic challenge camp going on right now and That's right. it's going off well. And Tonight we're, is we're our barbecue. Tonight is our barbecue. That's in fact, if you're listening to this and you are in the North Texas region with us, you're invited. If you're even further out than North Texas, if you can make it here. Make the drive. We will, we will feed you. Buy the plane ticket and you will get free barbecue from us. Yeah. True. Yeah. Hey, we are back in the Psalms and we're in Psalm 10, Psalm 11, and Psalm 12. And then we're going to finish up in uh, Acts, the rest of chapter 17. Let's do it. Uh, Psalm chapter 10, we don't have a superscription. So who wrote this one, Pastor Rod? I did. You did. Okay. Well, just if you're listening to this, sometimes you may hear your pastor or somebody else refer to the psalmist. And sometimes they'll refer to David and sometimes Asaph. And the reason is, is because the psalms are not all made up of one particular author. And so sometimes we can say with confidence that this is David. And then other times we have to, uh, it's, it's based on conjecture. And probably the safest thing to do is just to simply say, okay, well, the psalmist says this. Or the writer of Hebrews. Or the writer of Hebrews, who was not Paul. As far as we know. As far as we know. Maybe we'll get there and he'll be like, dude, I, I, I totally my Greek improved that. and it was me. <laughs> well, he would have some questions to answer then because there are some serious questions about Paul writing that. But anyway. Yeah. Well, Psalm chapter 10, we get into, uh, here's a, a word for you. Ready? We get into the, the, the subject of theodicy. Oh. Theodicy. Theodicy. What is the, the issue of theodicy? Theodicy deals with how can God be good and evil exist? Um, we've dealt with that in Job a lot. I mean, yeah, it's a just a repetitive theme and it, and it shows up here too, but with a different flavor. Uh, look at the opening question there of, of Psalm 10, one, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The, this happens so many times in, in the old Testament. I mean, not only with Job and then also with the psalmist, but how about Habakkuk? Remember how Habakkuk opens when Habakkuk says, God, how long am I going to cry? you know, there's injustice over here. There's violence over here and you're not doing anything. Where are you? What are you doing? And the, the answer seems to be the same over and over and over again. And that is my ways are not to be explained to you other than for you to, to just simply trust in what I'm doing and trust that I'm sovereign over what's going on. 
And that the psalmist gets there eventually, but in verses two through 11, he basically goes through and he says, look at how the wicked are prospering. Look at look the wicked boast of his desires of his souls and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. His ways prosper at all times. Verse five, your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And so the, the built-in questions here is, God, what, what are you doing? Why are you not responding? And, and I think in our culture today, we can look around and say, man, we, we can echo some of these same sentiments today. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at the, the horrific uh, laws being passed that support the killing of the unborn, or you look at you know, the, the laws that attack the, the God's definition of marriage and so forth and so on, and you, and you might be tempted and, and prone to say, God, it looks like the wicked are having their way and, and doing whatever they want. Drag queen shows for these children. Like, God, what, what is going on here? And, uh, and, and yet he gets down there in verse 12 and, and he petitions God. He says, okay, God, will you, will you act? Will you do something? And so he's, he's not throwing his hands up and saying, where are you God? Like Job did. And then just kind of sitting in the ashes in the dust and going, I'm just going to sit here. He's, he's asking for God to move. He's, he's petitioning God to, to respond. He's pe- petitioning God to, to bring judgment here. But what's so important, I think, is the end and how he concludes when he says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. He comes back to his confidence in the sovereignty of God over all of it in the end. And that's what allows us ultimately to to wrestle with this tension of God is there and evil seems to be prospering. What do we do? We have to remember his ways are not our ways and, and we have to trust him. The very fact that Psalm 10 is in your Bible proves the fact that God honors your struggle. Granted, uh, you can get dangerously close to being disrespectful and dishonorable toward the Lord, but by and large, if you follow the template that Psalm 10 gives you, it is appropriate, right, and good to struggle through what appears to be the the tension between God's all-good, all-knowing nature and the very reality of seeing evil among us. We can take note and take heart like the psalmist does in, in verse 14. God, you do see. You do note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. The question is not whether God will do it, but when he does it. And that's probably the hardest part for all of us. But notice in chapter 11 here, 10 rather, uh, the waiting that the psalmist does is not a passive, but an active waiting. Mm. Even in verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. The, not the physical, literal arm, but the arm as a representation of his power, his authority. It's good and right to pray that God bring down rulers who are unjust, who are wicked and unrighteous, and to celebrate and acknowledge the ultimate kingship of the Lord Yahweh. That's a, a good Question then, Pastor Otis, what do we do with the imprecatory psalms? What do we do when David is praying these psalms of judgment on his enemies? And is that right for us to do? And how do we balance that with a love for the lost? Man, I was going to ask you the same question in the next chapter, but let me <laughs> let me just tip my yes. hat a little bit. <laughs> Shucks, you got me. Okay, so there's a lot of things to think through here. Um, my quick and dirty shooting from the hip kind of answer for anyone who says, when do I pray the imprecatories? And I would say the spirit will know, will tell you when mm. you will know when it's right to pull out the imprecatory Psalms and imprecation when you're praying down curses upon somebody by and large, we're called to love our enemies, but strong underline emphasize, but here there are times when as a Christian suffering under persecution or witnessing the persecution or the evil acts of others where a Christian deep down inside knows this is so bad, Lord, destroy the wicked, take Mm. them out, Mm -hmm. stop them. I think about situations where child predation takes place. Mm -hmm. 
um, abuse, pedophilia, things that in your mind you would know, you would scream on the inside if you saw it, if you witnessed it, you would rend your soul. Those are the times when I think you're going to feel that sense of I must pray curses. Right. I must pray God's judgment, which is a better way to put that than, than curses alone. So be careful with those, but know that there's a time and place for that. We don't really know that because we've lived in such prosperity, mm. such protection that I think it's really hard for us to connect with this. But I, I hope um, there will be times when the spirit gives you the sense of, okay, now's the time to pull this out. Well, and I think a, another good barometer on that too is, is your offense more a personal offense or an offense on the, on the, behalf of God and his holiness and his righteousness. So if someone steals your parking spot, it's not okay to pray in a purgatory. No, or cuts you off on the freeway or anything. Don't do that. that. No, no, but, but that's that difference. I think in, in, it's hard to know, and it's hard to find the line between what's righteous anger versus unrighteous anger. When, when my anger is because I've been affected or I've been hurt or I've been wounded, chances are it's not a righteous anger versus is my anger because man, the character of God is being assaulted or his creation is being destroyed or his people that he's created in his own image are being defaced or dishonored or destroyed. Then my anger takes on that righteous connotation to it, that righteous tone to it where we can pray, God, put an end to this, whatever the means necessary, put an end to this situation so that this doesn't happen anymore. Well, and I hope I'm not going to step on your toes too much by jumping into chapter 11, but it says here in verse five, and we saw this a couple of chapters ago. I didn't bring it up because I didn't think it was the right time, but in verse five, chapter 11, the psalmist says, David, in this case, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Strong. I know, super strong. And in chapter five, verse five, you, you see something very similar. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And I did the word here. I, I looked at the word in the Hebrew and the word is what it looks like. It is the word hate. Right. Help us wrestle with that. Yeah. I, I, the, look, all of us are objects of the wrath of God, save for the, the grace of, of God in Jesus Christ. And look, all of us have sins that are due the full wrath of God. And, and his wrath is just anger, right? That's what wrath is. Mm. So that means he was angry at us with a just heated, passionate, um, wrathful indignation over our sins uh, that would draw his punishment, right? And look, all of our sins are either going to be punished. Every single person's sin will be punished. The, the One of two places on Christ or in eternity separated from, from the goodness of God in hell. Right. Mm. And so when we think about that, God, people always will say things like, well, love the sinner, hate the sin. And I, I understand the sentiment there, but the response to that is, man, when you look at hell, there's a lot of sinners in hell and there's not a lot of sin in hell, although I think they do continue to go on sinning, but it's the sinner being punished. Right. Right. And, and all of us would be there, but for the grace of Christ, right? Right. And and so when it says he hates the wicked, it's true. His holiness demands that response. His holiness demands that he would not condone wickedness or excuse wickedness or be okay with it or put up with it, but he must respond in wrath against it because holiness consumes anything that is unholy. And so that's that's what's going on here. He it means what he says. He hates the wicked. Now, the love of God is also communicated when he gives the wicked the chance to repent from their sins. And when we repent from our sins and now on this side of the cross, put our trust in Jesus as our savior, that hatred that God felt towards our sin is now retroactively, so to speak, satisfied through the death of Christ on the cross. So a skeptic might say, well, it sounds like your God is fairly schizophrenic. On the one hand, he hates the wicked. On the other hand, you've got the most famous verse, arguably, in the whole Bible, for God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Help us to square this passage with that one. 
Yeah, it, it, some have said the only sin that's punished is hell. in hell is the rejection of God's grace. They, I, I don't agree with that, but some have made that point. And I think that what they're trying to argue there is the greatest defense against God is, is rejecting his offer of forgiveness and redemption and restoration, right? Mm. And that's been there from the Old Testament. Uh, Paul in Galatians 3 says, God preached the gospel to Abraham saying, and you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So there was an opportunity even as far back as the very beginning to trust that God and God alone could atone for our sins. And that offer has been there from the very beginning. So God loved the world even before John 3.16 ever was uttered or, or by right. Jesus or written by John, depending on, on your view there. But it, it's it's a both and. And, and yet when we, when Christ has been rejected, uh, again, it's, it's the character of God that, that demands the response of the full wrath against the sinner. Mm. Man, at, at, at risk of making this podcast way too long, okay, just help us to land the plane here. When we think about having the God having hatred and love in the same heart, um, operating in the same time, uh, can you help us simplify that? Is there a way that we can understand love and hate working in the same heart at the same time? <laughs> in a in a a, a soundbite, so I don't have my a soundbite. Four year old daughter daughter could understand it. Yeah, I mean, it, he has he has has created. That it, as a as a parent, right? You look at your kids, and there are times that that you don't hate your kids, but you see things that grieve your heart in your children, and yet there are other times that your children will do things that you say, you know what? I I love my kids, and I right. love what they do here, and and my affection is is for them here. So there's the there's the disdain and the in the the love and the affection that can coexist there, and I, I guess that's somewhat improve upon that I, please please I'm I, would, I, you. I would only supplement what you said and it's a, yeah that parent child analogy I, I if i love my kids if we love our kids we're going to hate the things that threaten their well-being right we will hate the things that can steal from them and therefore even in a human heart we can understand okay if i love someone i will necessarily hate that which threatens their existence mm-hmm. their well-being and there's a similar sentiment in god although it's he's different god's complex not complex theologically, he's a simple God, but complex in that his emotions can have a lot of colors and shades that you and I can't fathom or understand because we're human and we're limited, but he is not. Right, right. Well, let's quickly hit on chapter 11 and chapter 12. I think that was a helpful conversation. I agree. Chapter 11, he is, uh, this is David again, the choir master of David. We see the superscription there. And this is uh, just his confidence in the Lord as his refuge, which again, we talked about that, um, I think yesterday, just recounting the goodness, the faithfulness of God and remembering that we can go to him when things are, are hard. We can flee to him. Um, the, the, the wicked say flee like a bird to your mountain. But what does David do? David goes to the Lord because why the Lord is holy in his temple. His throne is in heaven. His eyes see his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord is righteous. Verse seven. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And so the confidence that David has in the, the, the reign of the good and sovereign and holy God in, in chapter 11. Chapter 12, again, another lament psalm here, uh, full of, of petition and lament. Again, he's uh, praying here. David is. This is a, a sheminth, <laughs> a, a psalm of David. Shimmy. And, 
shimmy right um and he's praying and uh, and lamenting everyone's uttering lies to his neighbor and he's saying look everyone around me has is is, is faithless everyone around me has abandoned god it seems like and yet he comes back in verse six he says yet your words lord the words of the lord are pure words like silver refined in furnace on the ground purified seven times we can trust in the word of the lord and his confidence there in verse seven even despite the fact that i can't find any faithful around me you O lord will keep them and you will guard us from this generation forever onward and onward. So just encouraging to know that uh, Christians, uh, the fact that we look at this world and, and kind of dismay or, or shake our heads at the situation going on, we're not the first generation to do that. This is, I mean, David was there too, and his confidence in the Lord should be ours as well. Acts chapter 17, we get into the rest here of the chapter and now they're in Athens and you get this famous situation here just to kind of summarize everything. Paul ends up on the the Areopagus and again, Paul is intentional here and he's always looking for opportunities to get to the gospel. It says he's waiting for his companions to rejoin him. So he's reasoning in the synagogues again, again, reasoning and in the marketplace every day, notice it says with those who happen to be there. So Paul's like, okay, I'm here. Who needs the gospel? And he's looking around. He's taking every opportunity that he can, right? Yeah. Which leads him to start thinking about these statues that he's seeing around to all these gods. And then he goes to the Areopagus and he begins to reason there. And he says, look, you've got this one that is to the unknown God. And he said, let me tell you who the unknown God is. And he contextualizes, right? We've talked about that in the past. Contextualizes, which is how we we present the message. It's not tampering with the message, but it's how we present the message. So Paul contextualizes. He doesn't go to the Old Testament scriptures with this group. In fact, he quotes from some of their own philosophers, but he, he, he tries to get to and does eventually get to the gospel. He, he moves to close the deal at the end of chapter 17 there when he says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, now you're accountable because now you know, now you've heard the truth and he's commanding all people everywhere to repent because there's a day coming when he's going to judge the world in righteousness according to Jesus Christ goes on in verse 32 they heard the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said hey we'll hear you again on this so i think that the big takeaway here is i love paul's missionary heart and it's one that we should have as well he's looking for every opportunity he possibly can to get the gospel to everyone he possibly can get it to yeah one quick note at verse 30 one of the things that paul eventually lands a plane with verse 30 and 31 rather is that paul eventually gets to god's judgment so he calls them to repentance because of that delayed judgment he talks about god overlooking their prior ignorance what does that mean what way does God overlook? Well, overlooking in the sense that God does not enact judgment immediately upon the infraction. You see some of this in Romans 3.25 as well. And in God's forbearance, he passed over former sins. That's what's happening here. And so Paul is saying, look, God was so gracious and patient in the past, but now, guys, he calls you to repent because he's coming back and he's coming back to judge. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, uh, we hope that you guys have had a great day so far today. If you're just getting started, we pray that the rest of your day is great. And if uh, it's the end of your day, well, hey, we're grateful that you tuned in and uh, ended your day with us. But we will be back again tomorrow with another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Thanks, y'all. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast.